This is one of the most important days in Brazil's recent political history. A straight battle between the right and the left. So polls have opened in Brazil in elections widely seen as the most important since the restoration of democracy in the 1980s. And Brazil is heading for presidential elections this weekend in uh, which two men with diametrically opposed ideologies will fight for control of the world's fourth largest democracy. Few national elections received as much global attention last year as the ones organized in Brazil. Brazil's presidential election is heading for a second round runoff after no candidate won 50% of the vote. With foreign media trying to make sense and attempting to explain the sustained support for Jair Messias Bolsonaro. They vastly underestimated the support for the right-wing leader. What shocked the Lula camp in the first round was how well President Bolsonaro did. They really hadn't expected that at all. Trying to understand, because by many Western media and politicians, Bolsonaro, the so-called Trump of the tropics, was rather perceived as the boogeyman of global environmental politics. A danger to the country and to the world. And mainly because... To many, the very future of the Amazon rainforest is on the ballot. The magnificence of the Amazon rainforest is being burnt to the ground every single day. His time in office since 2019 has seen a sharp increase in the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, which Bolsonaro sees as an underexploited resource. I personally also follow these elections with great interest from abroad, through European media, on the other side of the ocean. One of the most stunning political comebacks. Celebration on the streets of Sao Paulo. And I saw how quick European leaders were to congratulate Luis Inácio Lula da Silva with his narrow victory. Elsewhere, world leaders sent their congratulations for Twitter to Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. What I can tell you is that the president uh, tweeted to congratulate the next president of Brazil. Ah, bonjour. Comment ça va, président? Félicitations. Lula, como vai? Felicidades. Parabéns, presidente. But it was not only the extremely polarized presidential race and the international support for Lula that drew my attention. Então, conscientizar as pessoas sobre tudo que vem nos afetando e dizer em pessoa que nós nos afeta diretamente. It also seemed that some activists and groups of Brazil's civil society seemed to manage so well to call international attention to the illegal territorial invasions, violence and crimes committed or supported by the government. While Bolsonaro tried to silence them, even deny their existence, their collective voice on the international stage seemed to be louder than ever before. I recorded the sounds you just heard in Brussels on October 20th, when young Brazilian indigenous leaders came to the EU capital to raise awareness about deforestation and the protection of their territories, and about the responsibility of European countries. It was just one of the many climate-related big international events where indigenous leaders were present. You'll probably remember the images of the COP, climate marches and other top international conferences. About a month after these recordings, I personally traveled to Brazil, to its political capital, Brasilia, about a month before the political transition. While being here, I could feel the sense of hope that was present. (laughs) 
hoped that this political transition could lead to a real period of reconstruction and transition in various policy areas, across regions, and together with the people who resisted against current divisions over the past years. So in an attempt to better understand what impact this political transition can actually have on environmental protection and territorial divisions in the country, but also on the groups seeking to bring about change on a local level, I decided to interview experts, civil society organizations and activists in the political capital, but also in some of the regions which have been hit hardest by environmental degradation and territorial conflicts. Brazil Reimagined, a Euradio podcast about Brazil's changing territorial, environmental, and agricultural policies, with the voice of those who are working to reconstruct, reimagine, and redivide from urban to rural in the Amazon and beyond. But first, my journey started in Brasilia. Because to be able to understand the potential impacts of the new policies and the role of different social groups in designing them, I felt I first needed to understand better how current policies came about. What changed over the past years, or what didn't, and on whom this had the biggest impact. I met Brazilian experts specialized in different policy areas, starting with the agricultural sector. Terrible for the sector because I first wanted to understand the changing dynamics in the agricultural sector because it was partly held responsible for the environmental destruction over the past years. They're clearing the forest to make grazing land for beef. This devastation has exploded under the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro. But I also wanted to know more about changes in the agricultural sector because, of course, Europe's interest in Brazil's environmental politics is also intertwined with the fact that the European Union is the second largest importer of Brazil's products after China. This topic about the agricultural production in Brazil, it's so complex here because we are one of the most important uh, producers of food in the world. The voice you just heard was of Yoselino Adamidas, professor at the Department of Geography at the University of Brasilia. He told me more about agricultural production and agricultural policies in Brazil and about the different types of farming that exist. In the last years, uh, Brazil has experienced a real boom uh, since the beginning of the 21st century due to the valorization of important commodities in the international market with emphasis on soy, sugarcane and corn grains production. This boom of commodities is controlled by big companies, big farmers, that they use the, the most modern methods that, that you, you have in agriculture. Of course, that if you consider the, the different regions in Brazil, you have inequalities uh, in, in these regions. But this region that, that are the core of the expansion of agribusiness sectors, like uh, uh, Central West and, and Southwest and, and South of Brazil, you, you can find big, big companies, including multinational companies. What I think that is different in Brazil comparing to the other countries is because how the, 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 the quantity of land uh, in Brazil that they use to producing and, 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 a, and a very huge scale of production. So it's very common here, for example, you, you, you can find uh, a farm with 
20,000 hectares, for example. So they are very big exploitation. Right now, Brazilians the lead in many sectors, but obviously the consequence of that, it's something that worry a lot. This production of soy is, is, is still advancing, for example, not only in the Cerrado, that it's, it's the Brazilian savanna, but also raising the alarm for the advance of soy and livestock in the Amazon. Because we are, they, they are linked with big production and big scale, they need big areas. For this reason that many experts is, is trying to use a, a, a term that we use in, in the period of colonization. There is the plantation. There's a plantation. Plantation we use when we talk about sugarcane in the colonial moment. But at the same time, many experts defend that basically we are facing a new plantation. So basically we, we, are, we are colonial again. And here in Brazil, we, we are facing the problem of desindustrialization and reprimarization. Re For example, the participation of GDP uh, in Brazil the participation of agriculture and primary products in Brazil, it is increasing. And uh, the participation of industry and GDP in Brazil is decreasing. Part of Brazilian group is in the hand of these producers because the agribusiness sector now is responsible for almost 35% of GDP of the country. So for this reason, they, they have more, more, more and more power, more and more power to deregulate uh, laws that already exist. Financial power would bring uh, a condition of extremely, extremely vulnerable to the dynamics of commodity. So large-scale intensive farming, rapid agricultural expansion with important environmental consequences. This is also how I imagined the agricultural landscape in Brazil before coming to the country. Other types of farming are, however, still important, even they became less visible on an international level. At the same time, the agriculture here in Brazil, it's very diverse because, yes, you have big companies using uh, the modern technologies, but we have also many peasant communities, many familiar agricultures that they never access these technologies. They still have the problem to access the land no, so, for this reason that in Brazil we have the, the most important social movement of uh, rural workers in the world, that is MST, Movimento dos Trabalhadores Rurais Sem Terra. So, basically, we have these this inequalities in agriculture. This diversity explains why, for example, in Brazil, during many times, uh, we always have, in the structure of the government and the policies, we have a ministry, to the agriculture and the ministry to the agrarian development. And basically here we know that Ministry of Agriculture it's a ministry that is thinking in public policies uh, to the big sector that that that, that produce in big areas with, with big scales to the exportation that produce commodities. And we have Ministry of Agrarian Development to support the peasants to support the familiar agriculture. Someone else who underlined these contradictions in agricultural landscape and policies and an equal relationship that exists between the different types of agriculture is Professor Tiago Lima from the Federal University of Paraíba, who I interviewed online. On one hand, you had a ministry defend short circuits of production and consumption, defending, uh, preserving 
local seeds, agroecological techniques, public policies for buying food from small producers. And on the other hand, you have a ministry defending that uh, nations can feed themselves from the international market, defending that industrialized food is just as good as any food, uh, defending highly mechanization, industrialization of agricultural production. Large... Professor Lima is specialized in international relations and Brazil's agriculture policies. He recently published an article about the silencing of peasant family farmers in foreign policy under the last two governments. That is why I got to know about his work, because I wanted to know more about this type of farmers we hear less of in the media and about their influence on policymaking. Lima explained that peasant family farmers in Brazil are a category of farmers that usually try to work outside of the capitalist logic, on a small scale, applying more traditional methods, valuing the local environment, culture and ecosystems. And to explain how peasant family farmers were silenced in policymaking, he went back in time. We have to go back a little bit. Uh, the 90s was a period of extreme violence and intense conflict in Brazil's rural areas. So the, the government finally, in the 90s, began to, to do the agrarian reform with some land redistribution. These reforms in the 90s, they improved a little bit the condition of the peasant family farmers. Then, he explained, with Lula's party the PT in power in the beginning of 2000s, the peasant family farmers saw their situation change even more through land distribution, financial support and the introduction of programs to buy their products above market prices. Besides, peasant family farmers got a stronger say in national and international policies through the previously mentioned Ministry of Agrarian Development. But this also meant that for the first time in Brazil's history, the contradictions between large-scale farming and peasant family farmers became explicit in policymaking. For the first time in history, those two models had a say and a vote within the policy debate in Brazil. So on the one hand, there was the Ministry of Agriculture representing the interests of the corporate agribusiness sector, and on the other, the Ministry of Agrarian Development representing the interests of peasant family farmers, local production and sustainable farming up until 2016, the year we remember because of the impeachment of President Dilma Rousseff. According to some authors, including Tiago Lima, this event can be described as the agro-coup. Why the agro-coup? Because uh, the vice president, Michel Temer, he was vice president to President Dilma Rousseff. Uh, he made an alliance with the legislators from the large agribusiness sector, and they removed President Dilma from, from office. And in his first day as interim president, Michel Temer, he eliminated the Ministry of Agrarian Development. That ministry was the main voice of the peasant in national politics, I was say. With the removal of the ministry, the voices of the peasant family farmers were also removed from the political sphere a strategy to silence the peasants in national and foreign policy making. Tiago Lima explained how this policy dismantling and silencing only intensified when Bolsonaro was in office. Besides, Bolsonaro had an explicit hate, I can say hate, against the peasants. So the public environment or any participation of the peasantry became very hostile to them. 
And this strategy of policy dismantling and silencing of certain groups was also applied in environmental policies. As Roberto Goulart Meneses and Ricardo Barbosa revealed in their article published in 2021. I interviewed Ricardo Barbosa on January 2nd, just after Lula's inauguration. So recent that Ricardo was sometimes still talking about Bolsonaro's governing periods in present time. Bolsonaro uh, positioned environmental policy as this uh, antagonism to development in Brazil and positioned those who uh, are aligned with environmental politics, who, who defend the environment, as enemies of Brazil's progress and specifically economic progress. So if he positions environmental policy as the impediment for progress in Brazil, he centralizes a lot of the authority surrounding the governance of the environment on himself and also on his past vice president, Hamilton Mourão, who was put in charge of a lot of these uh, of these policies through the Amazon Council. And in, in doing so, he also closes a lot of these shared participatory decision-making spaces. And this basically means that before you had a lot of voices that spoke on behalf of the environment, that made claims on behalf of the environment. and. Uh, during the Bolsonaro administration, you had a lot less spaces where these voices could be shared. Um, so this is the process that we describe as the authoritarian aspect of it, right? The centralization of power on uh, less federal bureaucracies and uh, federal bureaucracies that are less participatory. And then the other side of it is the more of the populist side, uh, is where Bolsonaro uh, actively names people who are, or groups of people who are identified as being associated with the environment as enemies. So he speaks uh, ill of and, and, and often uh, in very strong terms against uh, Quilombola folks, uh, against indigenous people, and then of course uh, against MST and other um, campesinos who are also important um, agents in the environmental protection. As Ricardo Barbosa explained, it is still hard to get a grasp of the long-term consequences of Bolsonaro's policies, even for Brazilian scientists. Some direct consequences, however, were immediately painfully evident. Uh, not only was uh, environmental degradation increasing, deforestation increasing, so forth and so on, uh, the state effectively stopped fiscalizing. Uh, the state did not enforce punishment, the state did not uphold previous fines. Uh, one of the other ways that this was also uh, done was that the environment became a talking point for Bolsonaro and his ministries uh, of, of attack. No fazem nada. Eu acho que nem para procuradores serve mais. Because you have environmental defenders who are then reduced, and then if they are reduced, they are lacking legitimacy. If they are lacking legitimacy, well, then their claims don't hold. Martha Fellows of the Amazon Environmental Research Institute could tell me more about the impact of Bolsonaro's policies on the communities who have always played a key role in protecting the forest, but were therefore increasingly targeted over the past years. I work at the Amazon Environmental Research Institute as a researcher and I coordinate the indigenous agenda at IPAM. I don't know if you're aware of the um, CAR. It's basically when some uh, farmer, for instance, they want to regulate their, their private area and they demarcate it in a system saying, okay, this area is mine and I'm gonna produce soybeans or I'm going to raise cattle and so and so. And the amount of this instrument that was used to land grab indigenous territories and public uh, forests was immense and skyrocketed during this past four years. And there are some indigenous territories that have 
almost 100% of their area overlapped by car. So it, this is one element that shows you that the farmers, and I'm not talking about small farmers, I'm talking about big farmers, they received a positive sign that they could go to whatever they wanted and to grab the land to themselves and destroy it. Anya Lenkar is the science director she published with other colleagues. They were comparing where the first station was stronger, let's say. And in the end, what they, they found out is that the indigenous territories, they were more affected proportionally. It increased 153% of the first station inside the indigenous lands. We, we did this comparison from the period of 2019 to 2021 with the, the three years before this period and it's amazing how you perceive that they they the these farmers that are, that I was talking about they did receive a green sign to land grab to the forest just like the other two experts Martha Fellows and Ricardo Barbosa ended their interviews with cautious optimism about reconstructing environmental policies. We're hopeful because beyond the environment itself, uh, we were very close to uh, leaving behind democracy. Irrespective of where we go back to, uh, we must go forward. Uh, what we had before was not enough. Um, certainly over the last four years, it was terrible, but we need to also um, move towards uh, environmental and climate policy and action that does have a broader appeal beyond uh, basic policy that, that, that has been put in place to this point. We, uh, we need to go forward with environmental policy in a way that thinks environmental policy uh, in, in more integrated terms, that thinks environmental policy along the demands of smallholders, um, uh, of smallholder farmers, uh, that thinks environmental policy uh, for the needs of indigenous communities, and that thinks environmental policy not at odds with economic interests, but also aligned with it. About a transition in the agricultural sector. So I think that the new government have this challenge to try to implement a new code of conduct, trying to implement more sustainable practices uh, with the commodities producer. And about the protection of indigenous territories. Hopefully, and this is a hope and not, <laughs> now I'm not talking about science. Uh, hopefully we're going to have better public policies, we're going to have better uh, conditions even to, to rule the country. Because you cannot talk about climate change, you cannot talk about environmental conservation if you don't talk with indigenous peoples. Because they have, based on their way of living, they have the most conserved areas in the whole country. I would like to use the word hope. I think that the inauguration of Lula walking up the ramp with the presidential sash, with, on his side, people representing all parts of the population. That this was done by a man, by a woman waste picker, by the people, you know? This brought us hope. Marina Silva being sworn in as a minister, Sonia Guajanjara being the first minister for indigenous peoples, that brought hope to us, you know? I think it's fundamental 
that the government surrounds itself with people who are at the grassroots of society. People in the states and regions who have been fighting all this time to protect the environment, to guarantee human rights. That they surround themselves with these people so that the people in the states are also willing to support this reconstruction. The last voice you heard was of Ivaneide Bandera Cardoso, who works on the protection of indigenous people in Rondonia, a periphery region which became at the center of attention because of deforestation and territorial conflict. Her voice might already sound familiar because the work of her organization, Caninde, was depicted in a documentary, The Territory, listed for the Oscars and presented at international film festivals worldwide, a film that raised awareness about illegal invasions of protected areas and attacks against indigenous peoples in the region. In the next episodes, you can hear more about her work and the situation in Rondonia. In this region, which used to be part of the Amazon, but now almost entirely consists of farmland, I also had the chance to interview others who are working to protect and value the forest still there, and the communities to whom it is their home. But first, the end of this episode takes you back to Brasilia. January 1st, Lula's inauguration, around midnight, just after his last speech. This podcast was produced for EU Radio. Presentation and editing by me, Nadine Vermeulen. Dubbing was done by Annie Deal. Interviews were recorded in Brasilia and online between December 16th and January 2nd. The song you're about to hear and heard in the beginning of the episode is Reza Forci of Bayana System. The song used for the introduction is Um Sonho de Nassau Zumbi. Sounds of the presidential inauguration were recorded in Brasilia on January 1st. A list of the media extracts you heard in the beginning of this podcast is included in the description. The next episode of this series will be available next month. Thank you for listening. Palma da mão, o universo inteiro ressona Palma da mão na onda do som